You're all doing okay? <laughs> you talked. <laughs> it's intense, no. You okay? <laughs> I want to um, start tonight with the story from Buddhist history, which is one of my favorite stories, and that's the story of the Emperor Ashoka, who was an emperor in northern India about 250 years or so after the time of the Buddha. In his early career, Ashoka was said to have been very bloodthirsty and greedy. He would often instigate battles in order to gain new territory and didn't really take care of his people very well, and it's also said that he was a very unhappy man. Then one day he ordered a battle that turned out to be particularly gruesome and terrible, with a tremendous amount of loss and bloodshed. And then in the morning, following the battle, he was walking across the battlefield, feeling quite unhappy. And it said that Just then, a Buddhist monk went walking by, and Ashoka was quite struck by his serenity. So that he thought, how could this be? You know, I have everything. I have everything that a person can have. And this monk, he's got nothing. All he owns are the robes he's wearing and the begging bowl that he's carrying. That's all he's got. And he looks so happy, and I'm so miserable. So he followed after the monk and basically asked him, why do you seem so happy? And the monk began teaching him some of the Buddhist teaching, and it was this uh, tremendous revolutionary experience for Emperor Ashoka. It said that after that, he really did take care of his people. He planted forests, and he built hospitals instead of waging war. He's very famous for having erected these um, pillars around northern India so that when one went on pilgrimage from one holy site to another, you would come upon these pillars, my favorite of which had carved upon it something like, the first few years of my meditation practice were pretty difficult. (laughs) But I persevered and things got a lot better. (laughs) So you persevere too. Ashoka had both a son and a daughter who ordained in the Buddhist tradition, became a monk and a nun, and then took the teachings from India to Sri Lanka and helped transplant them in Sri Lanka. And then from Sri Lanka, they spread to the rest of Southeast Asia, to Thailand and Burma, and then throughout Northern Asia, and then all around the world. I really love that story because I think of that moment when the monk walked by, not saying a word, and how his very being was so impactful that it actually changed the course of history. You know, if Ashoka had not gone through that experience, would we, in fact, be sitting here today, given the role that his son and his daughter played? You think about that. Obviously, it was a, a revolutionary act because it was, a very, it was a revolutionary kind of happiness. It wasn't our ordinary kind of happiness, which is getting what we want. 
and holding on tight. I once went on vacation with um, some friends of mine. It was a family who had a son who was maybe three or four years old at the time. And I noticed that whenever he didn't get what he wanted or what he got broke or changed in some way, he would run screaming through the house, nobody in this house loves me anymore. And I used to look at him and think, that's kind of a familiar state, you know. Things change, it's upsetting, we don't get what we want, and it feels like all the love in the universe has been withdrawn from us. And there's only that, that terrible truth. So it's not that kind of happiness, obviously, that can change the world. It's too fleeting, it's too dependent on conditions, it's too fragile. It's something much more, more stable I don't imagine the monk was walking across the battlefield delighted at what he saw. It wasn't that kind of of happiness. But he was in in touching something that was intact, no matter what. Something that was not broken, was not shattered, was not ruined by the devastation he saw around. And so he was the symbol of a possibility. And that's what so struck the Emperor Ashoka. That happiness is a potential for all of us. It's not just for the special few, the the ones who lived long ago in a faraway place, the ones who can have lives that are perhaps much simpler even than ours. As a potential, as a capacity, this, this happiness exists for everybody. And I think this is something that we need to aspire to, to realize we can break out of the circumscribed worlds in which we often live. I think meditation, I think of meditation often, both mindfulness meditation and loving-kindness meditation, as that which creates a sense of spaciousness, its openness, so that if we have felt trapped, if we felt we had no options, if we felt what was possible for us, for the world, was really very small, the more we pay attention and the more we open to connection, the bigger the world will become. Many years ago, I was visiting some friends in uh, Santa Fe, and... I told them that I had never been to the opera before. Santa Fe, of course, especially at that time before they did the, um, the new version of it and put on a new roof, they had a Santa Fe opera house, which was this extraordinary open-air theater. So my friends took me to the opera. And we sat in such a way that I could see the stage, but behind it I could see what Santa Fe in New Mexico is so famous for, that huge, open, expansive, immense sky. So I would look at the people behaving operatically on the stage, and then look up, and there was this whole other world, unconfined. It reminded me so much of the nature of meditation practice. It's not that the scene on the stage disappears, but we can hold it in a whole other perspective, which will just give us some space. 
I told that story to somebody once, and he said, oh, that's funny. If I were ever asked to describe my meditation practice, I would say, or I do say, that it's like I was sitting in this dark, enclosed, cramped theater. And then it just opened up. Everything just opened up. And in the description of metta practice, the Buddha said, I think quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, it cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So that if somebody were standing here in the middle of the room, throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in this space for the paint to land. So that it wouldn't matter in the end if it was a a wonderfully chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space is not going to be distorted. It's not going to be ruined. It's not going to be marred by that paint. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. I once was speaking at the Asia Society in New York City, and uh, there was a young girl in the audience with an adult. She was maybe, uh, the child was maybe seven or something like that. And it was a little hard observing their dynamic to figure out who brought whom, you know? <laughs> did the child bring the adult or did the adult bring the child? And I used that example, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. And the little girl raised her hand and she said, I don't understand that. She said, how is love like space? So I said, well, (laughs) I think it's like space in a few ways, in that it can't be destroyed by whatever occurs. It's bigger than that. It's, It's more immense than the circumstances that might be happening. And it not only can contain anything, but it can sort of embrace anything. It can come close. It can, it can surround anything that's happening. And she was silent for a moment. She said, okay, I agree with that. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> phew, that's good. So develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. What's so important, what has always been so important for me in the Buddhist tradition is that this isn't idealism. You know, this isn't like a fantasy. This isn't something fanciful. This is a true possibility. We need to hold to that sense of of a very big aspiration. And many of you have heard me or somebody tell the story of how we first... Um, decided to buy this building. Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield and I had each been back from Asia for just like a little under two years. Uh, Joseph and I from India and Jack from Thailand, where we'd been practicing. And we were teaching in this very kind of casual manner where somebody would write us a letter and say, well, I can get together some friends and a cook. Will you come teach a retreat? And we'd say, sure. And we'd lead that retreat, at the end of which we never knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter would come. And we were just kind of going around like this for a while when somebody suggested that we start a retreat center of our own. They said, 
It would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a place where the energy that was collected and engendered when people came together to practice wouldn't then have to be dispersed. And that seemed like a you know, wonderful thought and to the everlasting regret of many people, most of the interest in that was in New England. <laughs> you know, people say, you know, you could have had anywhere. <laughs> you, could have, you could have had Hawaii. <laughs> but it was in New England or on the East Coast. So we came and we looked up and down the East Coast for a long time. <clears throat> and finally somebody told us about this place, then owned by the Catholic Church, the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So we came here in December 1975. And we were pretty uncertain about what to do. On the one hand, it seemed perfect. But on the other hand, it seemed kind of big, you know, and here we were just having led this almost haphazard existence for a while, not sure how many people would be really interested in learning this kind of meditation. So not knowing what to do, we went to downtown Barry for lunch, and I know some of you probably passed through. Um, And you know that it's a very classic New England town with the town green in the center of it. And in those days... On the town green was a monument which had engraved upon it the Barry town motto, which is tranquil and alert. <laughs> so we looked at that and we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. And so we did it. I still like it. You know, one of my, uh, some of my friends got married here in town and it's, stamped on their wedding certificate, Tranquil and Alert, which I thought was a pretty good blessing for marriage. And um, the policemen wear it on their, you know, epaulette and things like that, and things like that. So it's kind of fun still. So this building has gone through many incarnations in itself. The main part of this building was built as a private home, a mansion, by somebody named Colonel Gaston, who was at one point the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And somebody was once reading um, a history of the town of Barry, which talked about Colonel Gaston. The room behind me, actually, the, the upper walking room used to be the ballroom. <laughs> the yoga room was the billiards room. <laughs> so they were reading this, this volume about Barry, and, which talked about Colonel Gaston, and it turned out that Colonel Gaston himself had a motto, which he tried to live by, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. (laughs) That was interesting. I like those two stories in juxtaposition because I think we do tend actually to have mottos that we live by. We have something that expresses what we think we're capable of, what we think our lives are about, what we can commit to, what we can grow to. And very often, it's kind of small. You know, there, there are a lot of things in our conditioning, personal and cultural, that make that sense of aspiration be, be limited or blunted. One of my Tibetan teachers, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, 
used to say that a lot. He more or less said, why is your sense of aspiration so small? Why is it so meager? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And of course, a good deal of our spiritual practice, our meditation practice, is a confrontation with why not. You know, what is holding us back? And can we see the the transparency of those self-limiting ideas? Can we see the fact that they're constructs, they're not solid, they're not permanent, they're not unyielding? And can we move forward to open and open and open to a much greater sense of who we are, who we can become, and how we can affect the world. That's really important to continue to open to a greater sense of aspiration. But the other side of spiritual life has more to do with what Kamala called surrender or a sense of patience. It's realizing that things take time. This is not the instant meditation society. That nature has its own course of action. That if we plant seeds, we can't determine how and when they will flower. We need to relax. We need to trust. We need to be at ease with the unfolding of events, because that's also the truth of things. One of my teachers, my first teacher actually, used to use this example. He said, imagine you're trying to split a piece of wood with an axe. You hit it 99 times and nothing happens. You hit it the 100th time and it breaks open. Mostly what we do is we then start to analyze and examine. What did I do differently the hundredth time that I didn't do the other 99? Was my stance different? Was I holding it differently? But really, as he uses the illustration, every single one of those blows was necessary to weaken the fiber of the wood before that opening could happen. It doesn't feel very good, you know, number 25, number 26, number 27, nothing's happening. And as I use the illustration, it's something even beyond just the mechanical act of hitting the wood and having the fiber being weakened so that it can break open. I think what is really the point of that image is the very fact that we keep going, that it's our endeavor, our heartfulness, our sense of humor, our willingness not knowing what the fruit's going to be to keep on trying. That's the opening that happens. It's within, not, not in the object. That's really the fruit of the practice, and that's measureless. So all of our normal kind of grasping after experience and having things happen in a certain way, it's not relevant in terms of spiritual life. And that's the biggest challenge of all, to be patient, to let things evolve, to see what we need to do and where we need to just let go. 
I often say one of the great spiritual experiences of my life was this time when I was in New York City checking into a hotel and riding up in an elevator when I realized I was carrying the very heavy suitcase I had in my arms. And I had the brilliant thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it. You know, we need to do what we need to do, and that's quite considerable. But beyond that, we need to let go. We need to have that kind of trust. And they both need to be true, that very strong sense of aspiration. And then understanding that our dreams come true step by step. That's how life is. It's moment by moment. Everything else is like a story we tell ourselves or to the world. But the truth of an alive spirituality is moment by moment. It's this moment and this moment. Krishnamurti once said, freedom is now or never. And that's very true right now. There's nothing to postpone. There's nothing to wait for. And there's no need to feel that the experience we're having is, is the wrong one. It's not good enough or important enough. It's what we've got. So together, aspiration and you can call it surrender, are, they're um, fused in a way and they're, they're brought to life through diligence. It's that heartfelt application of ourselves It's coming forward. It's being here. It's saying the next phrase. It's starting again. That's where it all happens. That's where it's real. And to do that, for that to be an actual facet of our lives, most teachers would say that it's it's very important, if not essential, to try to have a daily sitting practice because that is the arena where it all becomes real. No matter what we think about or are devoted to or you know, what we, um, how we regard meditation, the proof is in bringing it to life. It's that very pragmatic application of those skills. That's just a whole different level of reality. I know I told one of the groups uh, I met with here that, you know, when I went to India, I had studied uh, Buddhism a little bit in college before I went. And so I had a kind of feeling, as one often does, you know, um, that I knew all about it. You know, I'd written term papers on it, and I, you know, had midterm exams on it, and so I knew all about it. And, you know, and if you'd asked me what is the... Buddhist theory on how to be with pain according to the wheel of dependent origination and the arising of causality, I could have told you. But when I entered my first 10-day retreat, and it was my knee pain, I realized that's a whole different world. You know, I didn't know anything. And that's not a bad feeling to have as we really look at our experience and how to be with it. You know, not just to have the theoretical application, but really to be living it. And so those parts of the day that we dedicate just to practice are 
are those times when we are bringing those values to life, and it's a tremendous support. A lot of teachers would say, well, sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, which (laughs) my first teacher actually said, which was kind of different when we were living in India than living here. For me, I really think the most important aspect of that is the dailiness of it. If it can only be five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes on some days, then that's all it can be. But it's still important to do, very important to do. It's not really a very strong cultural value. So it takes a a great deal of commitment even to do it for 15 minutes a day. But it's, it's really an enormous help. Not too long ago, a friend of mine in New York City took me to this um, art exhibit, I guess you'd call it, um, with this, the artist was Marina Abramovich. And what she did for the exhibit was basically go on retreat in this gallery. And everyone watched her. She a big sign as you went in that said for seven days she wouldn't be reading or writing or speaking and she wouldn't be eating. She was also fasting. And everyone just watched her. (laughs) And I went. It was so interesting. I felt, uh, first I felt a little strange. I felt like I was sneaking into the annex and looking through the keyhole or something, you know. That is so strange. But the, almost my favorite part of the whole exhibit was um, as I was waiting in the entryway for my friend who was taking me there, somebody, an art critic, was talking to the gallery owner, very excited, and he said, has this ever been done before? <laughs> and I stood there and I thought, it's been done for thousands of years. I mean, like, people have done this since the beginning of time. You know, but it's so unknown to us as something to be valued um, that it's actually, you could be in a museum, you know, you go look at it. So the commitment, the intentionality needs to be very strong to be able to do it, really very strong. And I would urge you, you know, even if you um, don't sit every day, to really make it a part in a realistic way, a pragmatic way of your life so that you try to sit every day if you possibly can or close to it. If you sit for 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, the thing to realize is that it may be quite tumultuous. Very often the first 5 minutes or so of a sitting are completely beset with thoughts. And I'm living in New York City now, um, in this sublet, which I swear has the noisiest refrigerator in the universe. And I sit and I start thinking about the refrigerator. You know, can this be right? Shouldn't I tell the landlord? You know, is this just me? I don't know. Maybe I should call the repairman. You know, do I know a refrigerator repairman? How do you find your refrigerator repairman in the city? You know, and it's just like, that's what it's going to be like. You know, I forgot to call so and so. And as soon as I get up, I'm going to write that note. And, you know, And so if you only sit long enough to experience that, it's still, it's like a discharge of stress, you know, and tension. It's a very good thing to do. But you don't really probably have time to go deeper. 
And so that's the reason to see if you can stretch that, you know, past the 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. But if you've only got five minutes, it's still worth doing. And also to bring the practice to life, particularly metta practice, to life in, in daily activities. To do metta when you are walking down the street, when you're on the subway, when you're on an airplane, when you are in line in the grocery store. It's very interesting what you start to see both about yourself and about others. Once I was leading a, a meta retreat, a non-residential retreat in New York, downtown, and one of the things I love about teaching in that kind of forum is that when we go to do walking meditation, we go out into the streets of New York. So we were, we were doing metta and not walking slowly, <laughs> and... I went out walking with everybody else. I was just walking, doing metta, and I came upon somebody who was in the class, walking in the opposite direction, and we kind of smiled at each other and uh, went on our way. It was like we belonged to the secret love club, you know? (laughs) And then I kept walking, and I came upon someone else who was in the class, and we gave each other that same smile and went on our way. And then I came upon somebody, and I wasn't so sure if they were in the class or not. And I looked at them and I thought, I don't know. <laughs> like, and that went on a few more rounds. And then, of course, I was just laughing at myself because the very purpose of doing the metta was to get rid of all those divisions, you know, and boundaries. And you're in the class and you're not in the class. And so we see a lot about ourselves. And hopefully we can laugh. And we see a lot about the world. When metta is taught... Um, in very traditional cultures, like in Burma, it's taught certainly as a purification of our own minds. And the place where the mind is purified, um, according to the teachings, is in the field of intention, the intentions or the motivations behind our actions, which is considered the energetic um, place of the, of the action, that's the heart space from which the action is arising is considered, it's the karmic seed. It's where the, the juice or the energy of the action really is. You know, if I had a, a book here, for example, and I reached down to offer it to one of you, the energy of the action is not in my hand moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward. It's in the motivation that is giving rise to that. And that can be many, many different things. Now, I may be offering you the book because I like you and I want you to have it. Or I may be offering you the book because you have a book I want, which I've spotted. And I think, oh, well, you know, if I give you this book, maybe you'll give me that book. Or I might be giving you the book because here I am in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think of me as a very generous person. It's quite a different action, really, even though the mechanical part of a hand moving down and moving something forward is the same. It's quite a different action, depending on the motivation. And it's said that metta practice will transfigure our field of motivation. So if in general we have been coming from a place of fear, in general we will start coming from a place of care and connection. (laughs) 
That's why it's a home. It's, it's a Brahma Vihara. So why we do things, the place from which we are coming, our view of life, our sense of connection, are all transformed from doing the practice. And it's also taught that it's an energy. It's really like a force, the practice of metta. We can't confuse that with attachment, that understanding with attachment, like, well, if I send you metta for 15 hours, you will definitely, you know, get well or something like that. Like any gift that is freely given, we don't know how it's going to be received. But the integrity is actually in the act of the giving. So it's actually taught as, as a force, as something that, that's almost palpable. I had another experience teaching metta in an urban area, where, uh, which was in Oakland, California. And this time we all went out and did our metta walking practice on the streets of Oakland, and it was very close to the Amtrak station where I was teaching. So many people would go out to the platform, the train platform, and do their metta there, and then come back into the auditorium. So one woman came back once and told us this incredible story. She said that she'd been doing her walking, and as the trains would pull in, she would offer metta to the different people coming off the train, then this one guy came off the train, and she started to send him metta, and then she took a closer look at him, and she thought, you know what, I don't like him. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like what he's wearing. He looks really rigid and uptight. You know, I just don't like him. So then she was completely appalled at herself, you know. Here I am, supposed to be sending him metta, you know, and all I am is judging him. I'm not doing this right. And so she started, you know, saying the phrases for him again. And then he came over to her, and he said... I've never done anything like this before in my life, but I'd like to ask you to pray for me. He said, I'm going to this really difficult circumstance, and I've never done anything like this before, but you just seem to have kind of a loving air about you, and I'd like to ask you to pray for me. So she came back into the auditorium, and she said, you won't believe what just happened to me. Whether or not we can affect the situation around us, it is a contribution. It's an energy, like that monk walking across the battlefield. We transform our intentions. We act as skillfully as we can in any situation, and then we let go. Sometimes people are afraid, amongst the many things we're afraid of, that were they to develop a loving heart or a compassionate heart, then their actions would become very kind of squishy, you know, and they wouldn't be able to be strong um, or defiant or, or really try to make change in this world, that it would just be kind of mellow, you know. <laughs> um, and here it's important to understand, I think, going back to the Buddha's teaching on intention, Um, We talked about action, which in a way can be divided into three aspects. One is the intention, which is where the energy primarily is. The next aspect is in the skillfulness or unskillfulness of an action, so that 
here we have to have a kind of mindfulness that's taking in the context of where we are and trying to understand what might be the most skillful thing to do and being sensitive and learning from our mistakes and getting feedback and so on to be more and more skillful. So if we went back to the book example, you know, if out of a a beautiful motivation I wanted to give somebody this book, I might have to stop and think, well, you know, there's only one book. There's a lot of people in this room. Maybe this is the kind of action that's best done privately. Or in some other time. It's that kind of consideration, that kind of mindfulness that helps make the skillfulness or unskillfulness of an action. But that's different than the motivation which is giving rise to it. Out of a a very beautiful motivation, you may decide to do something based on your understanding of what is most skillful that may not fit your very narrow band of how love should manifest in this world. That's just the way it is. But it doesn't mean that it's not authentic or that it's not your best sense of what to do at the time. Many years ago, um, there was one winter here when I was really very sick. I had bronchitis and um, I kept having... I kept getting relapses, and I couldn't get better. And then finally, finally, after a very long time, I was getting better. And I was living in New York City. Um, And one day, I was walking down the street, and I heard a woman's voice behind me say, I've been really sick all winter. So naturally intrigued, I turned around. And there was this woman standing there giving a whole bunch of money to this guy sitting on the sidewalk who's a street person. And she said, I've been really sick all winter. I've had pneumonia several times. I couldn't get better. And now I'm finally starting to get better. And I just wanted to share the joy. So I thought, gee, I was really sick all winter too. (laughs) I just walked right by this guy. (laughs) Should I turn around? Should I go up to him and say, you're not going to believe this, but I was really sick all winter too. I'd like to give you some money also. You know, what should I do? I think... What's important in that story is not so much whether one gives money or not. I mean, that's a whole assessment based on all kinds of considerations of what you might consider to be most skillful in that situation. But it's that moment of recognition that that person's life has something to do with mine. That's what's really crucial. You know, that's, that's like the view or the vision that gives rise to the motivation Whatever action you decide to take, which can be based on all kinds of other things, that's really the the liberation of the heart, to recognize that connection. So we have the intention, we have the skillfulness of action, and then we have the third aspect, which has to do with the praise or the blame that accrues upon the action. So maybe... Out of this beautiful motivation, I decide to give you a book, and I choose it really carefully, and I wrap it really carefully, and I write a nice card, and I think about what to say in the card, and then I, you know, I say, well, you know, I've only got one book. I better take them aside and do it privately, and pull you aside, and I do it privately. But you know, maybe when you 
broke silence. You, you called home and you found out you just won $10 million in the lottery, you know, and you could not care less about this book. You know, so I hand it to you and you kind of nod distantly and walk away. And what does that mean about the quality of my generosity? What does that mean about the quality of my heart? Nothing. But of course, that's the very arena that we fixate on to decide who we are and what we are worth. Our motivations are something we continually learn about as we get more aware, and we can transform as we do practices like this. And the skillfulness of our action is also something we continually learn about and can, can change and, and affect and grow in greater skillfulness. But this last, the receiving of praise and blame, we will never be able to just stamp out or control. And the other part of that is realizing that the effect that the action has in this moment may not be the end of the story. You know, sometimes we really are planting a seed, and it takes a while. We have to aim our hearts toward the good. We have to do the best we can. We have to take every opportunity to try to have an effect in this world, to make it a better world, even if it seems like a tiny thing. Because we don't know how it will move and grow and change. That's really very crucial. My all-time favorite story of that has to do with... um, when Saito Upandita came here in 1984, uh, he had a, a brilliant translator. He was here for three months. And at the end of the course, somebody came to me and said, wouldn't it be wonderful to create a book based on his teachings, on his discourses, since we had such a good translator? And, and I said, sure, you know, that seems like a great idea. And I spearheaded a project to... You know, I I raised money and hired a transcriber and had a friend do an enormous amount of editing and found a publisher, and it finally became a book, which is called In This Very Life, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha. And when it was completed, I thought, you know, this book's never going to be a bestseller, but this is a great thing, you know. It's, It's a nice way to thank my teacher. This is a very clear expression of very classical Buddha Dhamma, you know, for people who can tune into that idiom, that way of expressing spiritual truth. It will be a very clear, wonderful book, but it's not going to go very far. So in my mind, I kind of put it in the minor good deed category and just kind of forgot about it in a way. And then um, some years later, I heard an amazing addendum to that uh, there's a woman in Burma named Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, who has spent quite a bit of time under house arrest, um, since Burma is run by a military dictatorship. And um, while she was under house arrest, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. And her years of house arrest um, were very difficult. She At that time, her husband was alive. She had two young children living in England. It was always clear that she could leave, but it was also clear she could never get back into Burma. And so even though she did not see her husband or children for many years, and um, she suffered in many ways, uh, physically and so on, 
she decided she was not going to leave because she was and is the hope for democracy for the Burmese people. So she stays on. And uh, as many people in a circumstance of imprisonment, she decided she wanted to use the time to further her spiritual life. And for her, being born a Buddhist um, in Burma, that meant meditating. But she didn't know how. So she said in uh, some interviews later on, she said that she would sit at the edge of her bed and kind of squeeze her eyes shut and try to force all thoughts out of her mind. And of course, she got more and more and more tense. And then one day, her husband in England sent in that book, Upandita's book, In This Very Life, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha. And she said she used that book to teach herself how to meditate. And she said um, later on, she's still in Burma, her life is still very restricted, but there are certain periods when journalists and so on have been able to see her. And she said in one of those freer times that that book was her main source of spiritual support in her years of house arrest. So I heard that. (laughs) And I quickly took it out of the minor good deed category. (laughs) And I put it into the miracle category. (laughs) Because she has long been one of my heroes, and I never, ever thought that anything I could do would in any way be supportive of her work. So at that point, I decided that one day I was going to write a book called Basically Clueless, (laughs) which I have not yet done, actually. It's still to be done. Because I think basically clueless expresses a lot about our lives. We don't have a clue. You know, we have to do the best we can. We have to act in as moral and honest and truthful way as we can possibly act toward the good, even when it seems really small, and we don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. And that is basically the truth of our lives. So we practice metta in that formal sense of a practice for how it can change us, and it does change us. Even when you don't experience it in the sitting. This is also true, certainly, for mindfulness practice. When I was living in India, I was trying to sit an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, and even in India, where there was basically nothing else to do, it was difficult. The primary reason it was difficult was because I was so judgmental. Whenever my practice felt good, and it was serene, and I had nice sensations, or I felt really concentrated, I would think, okay, I'm going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, feeling just this way. And when I sat down and I was hassled or I was restless or I was bored or my knees hurt or my back hurt, I would get up. i think, it's not working. I can't do it. And finally, I went to this teacher, Manindraji, and described this dynamic. He said to me, I have one piece of advice for you. He said, just put your body there. He said, that's your job. Put your body there every day. Some days it's going to feel one way, other days it's going to feel another way. It's all a mystery anyway, really. Just put your body there. That is what is really most important. 
I think I'll stop there. And we can do that for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.